went into that book as we prepared to study it three chapters I'm sure you're like wow this is a great Thanksgiving message isn't it um, I'm not one that, that tends to preach to the calendar as much I, I don't uh, uh, tend to look at the holidays and preach every holiday I, I hope though as we leave here looking at Nahum you will be grateful for this amazing God that we serve. Confidence. Where is your confidence put? Who is your confidence put in? It's a question I think that, that we need to consider. And, and it's easy, I think, sometimes for us to, to put our confidence in our wealth. What we have, the things that we hold on to, maybe that, that bank account. But when we look at Job, we realize that's probably not a safe place to put our confidence, is it? He lost everything in one day. What about status? The, the, the power that you have or the position that you hold or, or someone else holds? Well, we only have to look to Nebuchadnezzar to realize that that can be taken away in an instant. Ooh, what about strength? And, and I'm not talking just physical strength, but what is it that makes you feel strong? What is it that makes you feel comfortable? What is it that makes you feel fearless? That offers strength within even. We often look to strength. We want to feel strong. We want to be strong. And we look to different ones or things to feel that way, don't we? But as we'll look at our passage today, strength can be fleeting no matter how strong we may be. But we're sitting in church today. We're the religious ones, right? So the answer, of course, automatically, where is your confidence? You're going to be like, well, my confidence is in God. Is it, though? Is that truly where you put your confidence? Okay. If it is, what does your God look like? Is he a God of, of grace and mercy? We like that God, don't we? What about a God who is patient and long-suffering? How many of you need that God? Oh, I do. What about a God who gives second chances? Is that your God? And third and fourth and fifth, right? It goes along with that long-suffering. What about a, a restrained God? 
a God who is, is powerful, but he controls that power. I, I need that God. What about a loving God? Is your God loving? A giving God? I mean, the, the example this morning is we remembered Calvary. He's a giving God. What about creator God? We look around at all we have and, and see. Is that your God? What about sovereign? Just? We, we look at these words, we hear these words defining our God and often when these words are used, these definitions are used of our God, our mind kind of shifts more to the New Testament description of God. It's interesting though, as we've been going through the Old Testament, these definitions of God have been clearly, clearly We have seen them. But what about a God of wrath? What about a God of judgment? Retribution. That, that can leave an individual feeling a little more uncomfortable when they consider their God defined. And oftentimes we're like, that's the God of the Old Testament. Which is interesting because all those things we just listed before it have been clearly seen and demonstrated in powerful, beautiful ways. Nahum begins the book, the first words of it are the oracle of Nineveh. And when we consider that word oracle, it is a weighty, burdensome kind of a message. It's not some light-hearted thing that's coming across. It's, it's actually a common term in a lot of the prophetic books as we go through them, but retribution. When we think of retribution, it's receiving or dispensing divine judgment. Getting what is deserved. Compensation. We, we don't want to think of our God as a God of wrath, judgment, and retribution, do we? That's uncomfortable because we probably know ourselves better than anybody else. This, this book of Nahum carries a heavy tone. And today's message may feel a little heavier. I, I would not recommend Nahum as one of the first books you take someone to if you're introducing them to God. 
but it's definitely not a book that we should avoid when looking at our God either. We're looking at the oracle of Nineveh. We are looking at Nineveh. Nineveh was a city that was, well, unlike any other of its time. Powerful, arrogant, it was the Assyrian Empire city. You talk about a city, a people that were reliant upon their strength, the city of Nineveh had a good reason, humanly speaking, to be confident in their strength. This city had two walls, and the outer wall was 100 feet high. Imagine that if you can. That's pretty high, and it had towers all the way around that would go another 100 feet high above the wall. On this wall, it said that you could race three chariots side by side around the whole top. As far as fortification, it could withstand a 20-year siege. That's a long time. They were very confident in their own strength. And, and Nahum's not the first time that we actually look at this, this city of Nineveh. Look where we've, we've kind of been going with Nineveh as, as we look at this, this timeline. It was around... Oops, sorry, I bumped it in there. It was around 760 B.C., and any time you're in B.C., you got to think backwards just a little bit, okay? But in 7060 B.C., Jonah went to the city of Nineveh. Remember, he wasn't too keen on that idea. He'd rather God just wipe them out. In fact, I imagine Jonah would have been really thrilled with the book of Nahum. But in 76 or 760 B.C., we see God extend mercy to the city as they repent. This was a brutal city, but they repented. It's interesting, though, that 40 years later, doesn't take long, does it? The passing of one generation, if even that, and we see this city, this nation, this empire attack Israel, the northern kingdom. And they lead them and take them into captivity. It would be in 701 B.C. that they would try to do the same thing with Judah. But as we looked last week, Judah repented. Judah saw the sin in their life and they turned back to God and God's like, watch this. And God delivered Judah from Assyria in a powerful way. Judah didn't even lift a finger. The fall of Nineveh is predicted in the book of Nahum. That fall would eventually come in 612 B.C. as Babylon would come in and wipe them out. 
prophecy was probably written somewhere around 660 B.C., 650. We don't know the exact time of the writing of Nahum, but right about in that time frame. God would send the message of the destruction of this massive city. 100 years between. At one point, God's extending His mercy. At the next, He is delivering a message, an oracle to this city. Judah as we read Nahum, is under the yoke, the heavy burden of this Assyrian city. Years have passed. Listen to what it says in Nahum 1.13. I'd encourage you to read this cheerful book today sometime. But it says, So now I will break his yoke bar from you, upon you, and I will tear off your shackles. This book is a message to Nineveh, but it is also for Judah. It is also for God's people. Let's, let's look at this, this book in overview, and then I want to look at our God. Because I think it's important what we see about our God in this book. But in, in general, first of all, twice in this book, we see the statement, I am against you. God says that to Nineveh twice. And the words after it are not very nice. I am against you, God says. In chapter 1, we see that the certainty of God's judgment is coming. It is decreed. There is going to be no relenting this time. There is going to be no ability to pull back. It is decreed. We see God's wrath coming upon sin and evil. And for some here, that may be concerning. For others, this is encouraging. We see that there is a God of retribution. A God who will deal with sin and evil. Because I know that some in here have had sin and evil poured out on them. You have been the recipient of that evil, that sin. We cry out for justice. We see a side of his character in chapter 1 that is vital for you and I to see clearly. And when we look at chapter 1, our, our jaws should drop some as we understand who this God is. God's faithfulness, though, God's faithfulness to his people in chapter 1 is one of the most encouraging and comforting things that we see. Think about that. In chapter 2, we see a vivid description of God's judgment. I, I don't know about you, but when I was in trouble as, as a child, I haven't been in trouble since, but 
When I was in trouble as a child, the scariest thing was a description of what the punishment would be. And when we look at chapter 2, we begin to see a vivid description of what God is going to do to this city, Nineveh, to these people. We see an attack and a defeat with plundering. They are going to be ravaged. Look at Nahum chapter 2, verse 1. Look at what it says. The one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all your strength. You're going to need it, and it's going to do you no good. God defines himself as the one who scatters. We see details of, of what would come just some 30 years later. In 612 B.C., look at what it says in verses 5 and 6 of the same chapter. It says, he remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her wall. And the mantlet is set up, set up. The gates of the rivers are open, and the palace is destroyed. You're like, that doesn't really make much sense. If you study history, it does. Because Nineveh, you know how it was destroyed? They're surrounded and they are in there having a party. They are looking at their fortress. They're like, <laughs> we got 20 years, we're good. I mean, the moat around this city was 150 feet wide and 60 feet deep. That's a big moat. But do you realize that God is not stopped by walls? God is not stopped by politics. God is not stopped by what man says cannot be. And God just allowed this tiny river called the Tigris to overflow. And when it overflowed, it went right into those walls, and the walls crumbled. When they crumbled, they filled in that moat, and guess what? Babylon went marching right into a whole bunch of drunk soldiers and nobles. Because chapter 3 gives the reason for God's judgment. This judgment that is coming is deserved. The judgment that is coming, this, this last chapter in the prophetic poetry that Nahum uses is a lament. It is a funeral lament as he describes what God is going to do and why. Look with me at Nahum chapter 3, verse 4. All because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, 
who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. This is not only against Judah that Nineveh has been doing these horrific things. History tells us these people were evil. The demonic activity, the pleasures they got from some of the sickest things was done upon nation, upon nation, upon nation, over and over. Look at the violence. Look at what they would receive. 5 and 7 continues on, and I want us to look at 19. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will show filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shriek away from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I see comforters for you? Verse 19. There is no relief for your break, uh, breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you, all will clap their hands over you. For on whom has not your evil passed continually. No nation would shed a tear over the loss of these people. No one would come to their aid. When we read Nahum, you and I get a fuller picture of our God. We, we see him for who he is. When you and I read Revelation, and we'll be there soon, we get a fuller picture of Jesus Christ. The opening words of that book is the revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ, making him fully known to you and me. Nahum allows for us to get a fuller picture of God. Nineveh and the Assyrians are examples to the world, not just to Judah, but to the world, how God deals with sin and evil. And it's not comforting. But guess what? God fulfills His Word. And history shows that. You, you and I serve a holy God. The word holy, I think, has lost the, the depth of, of its true meaning to us. When I think of a holy God, one of the pictures that comes to mind is actually a picture from the book that C.S. Lewis wrote, The Lion, the Witch, in the wardrobe from the, the uh, Chronicles and Narnia series. How many of you have actually read that book? Not the movie, the book. Okay, good, good. It's a good book. 
There is a, a part in that book where Lucy, if you know who she is, she's the youngest, is having a conversation with the beavers. They're like, our pastor has lost it. Here's how that conversation goes. Let me read it for you. Mrs. Beaver is introducing Lucy for the first time to Aslan. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. Sorry, it's Susan, that's not Lucy. My bad. I, I thought he was a man. Is is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion, she said. That you will, dearie. And make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Be Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king. When we look at a holy God, don't mistake in him as safe and cuddly. God is not safe. But we're going to look at that in just a moment. Consider how God himself describes himself in the opening verses of this book. I want us to go back to the chapter 1, and I want us to look at verses 2 through 6. This is God, whoa, you are not going to be able to read that. Nope. Boy, I messed up on that one. You're going to have to open your Bible or listen. This is how God defines himself. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished in whirlwind and storm is his way and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Basham and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him and the hills dissolve. 
and there indeed the earth is upheaved by his presence the world and all the inhabitants in it who can stand before his indignation who can endure the burning of his anger his wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him don't ever ask God to describe himself you look at Job it's a similar picture you and I serve a holy 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 God Safe. look at the adjectives God uses to describe himself avenging wrathful jealous a whirlwind a storm one who rebukes like fire one who doesn't leave guilty unpunished those are the adjectives that's God describing himself look at the two questions he posed concerning him I mean really they're rhetorical but first question who can stand against his indignation who answer no one second question who can endure the burning of his anger his fury answer no one we look at God and to not recognize these traits and attributes about the God the holy God that we serve is is foolishness to seeing a holy God is to see sin and evil as he does. See, we're uncomfortable with this God because we're comfortable with sin. If we weren't comfortable with sin and evil, then we'd be more comfortable with that God. But we have a wrong view of sin. Scripture is clear. God hates what is evil? God hates sin. Scripture is clear. All sin. And I love that we like to say big and small, you know, all of it, right? All sin deserves death. And then Scripture says that sin is anything that falls short of God's glory. That falls short of God's holiness. And the more we see God's glory and holiness and perfection, the clearer sin becomes. And the further and further and further we want to be close. You and I fall short every time. But He
says this very same thing in 2 Peter 3.9. Peter says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. That's our God. Is he saved? No, he's good though. And he wants you and I to have a relationship with him. And he can be the safe place that we go to. Look at verse 7. I love verse 7. After God uses all those adjectives, God says, The Lord is good. A strong something strong, hold on to him. 
because she understood she understood what Jesus Christ did for her and when I asked why do you want to get baptized she says because I love him I love him I love what he did for me do you realize she said because he's my friend you and I before we come to Christ scripture says are enemies of God and Nahum is very clear about what God does to his enemies but when we come and we receive that gift we become friends of God we enter into a relationship where we can say the Lord is good he is a stronghold in the day of trouble and we have many days where we see trouble don't we but he's a stronghold and he knows those who take refuge in him Do you have a full picture of this amazing God? This God who has revealed himself, who wants to make himself known with you and me? Do you have a full picture of who he is? How much he loved you to deal with sin? If so, you can have confidence in him. You can truly sit here this morning and go, my confidence is in this God. He knows those who take refuge in him. Does he know you? Does he know you? Have you sought refuge in Jesus Christ? If not, let Nineveh be a warning to you. And as he faithfully does time and time again, I encourage you, if you've been rejecting, if you have been pushing him away, to run to him. The song we sang earlier says he came running to us he wants you to know him I encourage you get to know him and what he's done let's pray Heavenly Father God this morning we are grateful we are grateful for your son we are grateful that we serve a God who is holy, who deals with sin. And God, you dealt with my sin on that cross that day. You dealt with the sin of the world. My prayer this morning is that if there are any listening, 
who like Nineveh have been pushing you away time and time again, that this morning would be the moment, the time that they stop. And they turn to you. God, that they realize their sin, they lay it down at your feet, putting their faith in the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. God, for those of us who do know you, God, please give us a heart that sees sin and evil as you do. May we draw closer to you. May we hold on to you as our stronghold. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we close our time this morning, uh, we're